0: As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews.
1: It never was a Republican versus Democratic issue, but what has happened is that Take Arizona. The Koch brothers basically control that statehouse, and they have created a billion and a half dollars less in school aid for the kids in Arizona over the course of the last few years. Why? Because they go into tax cuts, they go into privatization, they go into other things at the expense of kids.
0: president of the american federation of teachers in her dc office recently we discussed her career and the aft's role in our current politics randy is in a crucially important place right now her union represents about 1.7 million people betsy devos is secretary of education teachers are striking in several states the janus case is threatening public sector unions and the most important midterm election of my lifetime is fast approaching Randy is a key progressive leader, and I felt privileged to have a chance to hear her thoughts. In her interview, she talks about the large sign on her office door, which has her thoughts about the upcoming election and why it's her highest priority. It's an exhortation posted for all of her visitors to see. I don't think Randy Weingarten needs much more for an introduction, so after our sponsor, the interview. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography?
1: I'm Randy Weingarten. I am the president of the AFT, which is a 1.7 million member union of professionals, ranging from teachers and guidance counselors and school bus drivers to college professors and nurses and healthcare professionals and correction officers. And we represent people in over 44 different states who every single day try to make a difference in the lives of other people.
0: It's a pretty important job.
1: The people we represent are amazing and the communities they serve is what makes America great.
0: I'm with you. How did you first get into the union movement? I know you've been in it a long time. Right. Um, I'm old. And, well, you've <laughs> you had to have some time to rise to this to this kind of pinnacle. But what was the mm-hmm. what was your first move into this? I know you also taught some. And-
1: Look, I was both a a lawyer and a social studies teacher, and I moved into the union electoral process as opposed to a staffing process only after I taught because I felt like what our union does. And the reason I feel like I'm the luckiest person alive, because I get every single day to work on issues that matter to people. And I have a high enough position that I actually can move an agenda. And what are those issues? Every day, our union champions making things better for people in America opportunity in education, ensuring good health care, good services in communities, and making things better for the people who do this work, to have a voice at work, and to have respect and dignity so that they can provide for their families. So I got into this work because I wanted to give of myself in my professional life. I thought that the most important work I could do as a grown-up is to give back. There's a word in Hebrew, tikkun olam, to repair the world, which needs a lot of repairing. And so I wanted to first be a lawyer to try to correct injustice and thought that the legal process was how to do that. But realized, frankly, organizing and mobilizing Doing this work at the ballot box and at the bargaining table allows you far more transformational change and that you can't actually just do it within the labor movement. You have to help create a fusion movement of labor and community that is very focused on the values of bettering people's lives so that they have power themselves to have a better life. So that's kind of what sparked me as I was growing up. And how lucky can I be that first I became a, a lawyer and one of the clients we had was some unions. I worked in a, in a big Wall Street law firm, but they and I made an agreement that I would only work on the labor side of employment issues because I didn't wanna work on the employer side. And they kept to that agreement. And then a few years after I got my skills or those skills, I was lucky enough to get the job as counsel to the teachers union in New York. And then a few years after that, I decided with both Al Shanker and Sandy Feldman and dear colleague of mine who became my co-teacher, that to really do this work You had to walk the walk. And so I taught school at Clara Barton High School, um, social studies. And what's in some ways so uh, ironic is that both my sister, who became an intensive care pediatrician, and myself, we were the children of a second and third grade school teacher who worked all the time. We had papers papers festooned on our living room table all the time. And we just thought, my sister and I thought, my mother just worked much too hard. She was working weekends, she was working all the time, grading papers, preparing lessons, and yet both of us became connected in a very fundamental way to education. My sister teaches medical students all the time, and I do this.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm always interested in the the source of the values of people like you. And you know, in my household, I think it was kind of a mixed marriage because I had an, an NEA and an AFT member, <laughs> my dad and my mom. My mom taught high school math and my dad taught uh, university uh, Shakespeare and so on. But tell me a little bit about what you learned as a teacher that applies to what you do now as the head of a teacher's union.
1: What I learned as a teacher is the basic resiliency of children and the basic goodness of children. And that children want to have a good life. Children basically want to have a life that is fulfilling. And children need to see a path to their own empowerment and their own confidence and their own self-esteem and are willing to be challenged and pushed if they believe that you love them. That's what I learned, and I spent a lot of time every morning before I taught, pretty much getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning and thinking about, what do I do today? How do I do this? How do I take this lesson and really create engagement? How do I create an environment where children feel engaged and take responsibility for their own education. Um, And frankly, when I say children, I taught 11th to 12th graders, mostly kids who were taller than me. (laughs) And, you know, I was frustrated by it. I didn't do it well sometimes. Some of my lessons completely bombed. Some of them really worked. But when I look back, it is the best job I've ever had. And I miss that dynamic of every day being in a classroom with my kids. I
0: know watching my mom just in, you know, who taught at Boulder High School, just seeing the connection she had to so many people after teaching for decades, right. you know, in the community, it's it's a remarkable job.
1: And it is it is a really tough... People do not understand just how tough a job it is. It's a hard work. And, and the notion that you can take the autonomy or the professional judgment out of teaching is just completely wrong. It's so infuriating. It's just what teachers do is it's not simply that you know your content, you have to really deeply know your content. And that in and of itself is a big learning curve. But you also have to know how to teach and you have to know how to communicate in a way that kids hear and in ways that they are engaged. So you also have to be a social psychologist. And you have to understand the psychology and you have to actually manage a whole bunch of people who don't want to be managed. So, you know, you think about those of us in management now, what do I do? Today, I manage what, five, six, maybe 10 people who then manage a whole bunch of people themselves. As a teacher, you are managing an entire class, 20, 30, 40 kids. You have on your roster as a teacher in New York City, You know, if you taught five periods a day, you could have 150 kids. You could have more than 150 kids. And you got to know them all. 170 kids, and you have to know them all, and you have to know them in a really great way. So all I'm saying is, it is a really hard job, and it is emotionally and physically exhausting. You know, we often say before somebody starts criticizing teachers or public schools, spend 10 minutes in a classroom.
0: Yeah, 10. 10 would be a good start.
1: Yeah. Let's start with 10. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, what took you then out of teaching and back into the labor movement?
1: Well, I was as as I was teaching, I was also very involved in the labor movement. I was also doing the negotiations at the Teachers Union in New York City. I was also very involved in lots of different things. So, what I saw is that this merger between helping to enable opportunity for students because they have to seize their own opportunity. But helping to enable opportunities for students and also helping the adults who taught them have a better life was just what I wanted to do in my life.
0: And it seemed like you pretty quickly ended up as the head of the UFT.
1: Well, you know, I started working when I was at the law firm for the UFT in 1984. And I actually went and was an employee of the UFT from 1986. I became its president in 1998. Um, so, so not that It's quickly. not, it wasn't, I mean, I had just turned 40. So for those jobs, that was a pretty, I'm a big believer in experience. I think this notion that experience doesn't matter is so wrong, and it also makes a mockery of the work that we do in some ways. Having charisma is obviously important in terms of people bonding and creating relationships and listening to you, but experience really matters. So I did a whole bunch of different jobs within the UFT, including um, six years of part-time and full-time teaching.
0: It seemed like there's a lot of, you know, there's conflict between these unions and the, and the people paying the bills, the states or whatever. And it's not every individual who's ready to bargain in those situations and fight the fights that need to be fought, what was it about you that allowed you to to kind of step into that?
1: I'm a big believer in finding solutions, that you actually need to have the power to be able to wrest away someone else's power. Solution-driven unionism is not kumbaya, Collaboration is not kumbaya. You have to have enough power that other people within a relationship believe that they need to actually compromise with you or find a common ground. So I'm a big believer in solutions at a bargaining table and having enough power so that you are viewed as an equal partner, but that you're actually at a bargaining table. Um, You know, there is a saying these days that if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And so you have to have more than one speed. You have to actually figure out how to create enough power for people, which frankly means that people having the power themselves and are empowered themselves in order to move an agenda. Frederick Douglass said it best, power never yields willingly. In these days, what happens is it's not just states versus or districts versus their employees. There are multilateral relationships that make things very hard for communities and for those who work for communities to actually get the respect and dignity they need. So take, for example, we're in a second Gilded Age, in my opinion. Income inequality is higher today than it was in 1916. And then it was the monopolies of the oil companies and you know the steel companies and the coal companies. Now it's the Koch brothers and the DeVos family and the Prince family and several of these other gazillionaires that actually just want market monopolies that they run to aggregate their own power. And they use it economically and they use it in the political process.
0: It does seem like one of the major things going on is the attempt to privatize public education at every level. Right.
1: Well, it's the attempt to privatize public education. It's the attempt to privatize prison systems and then imprison more people, particularly black and brown people. It's the attempt to starve governments since Reagan in some ways, maybe even since Barry Goldwater. But you have this constant fight in America- between individualism, the rugged individual who pulls themselves up from by the bootstraps versus a sense of a collective and shared responsibility, a social contract, which is frankly embedded in the United States Constitution of we the people. And you see, if you look through American history, you see this constant friction. And that in some ways plays itself out in terms of what Reagan did on the federal budget and what you see a lot of these right wing or right wing elected Republicans from 2010 or 2014 as governors who basically just starved services and then attempted to privatize. So it was privatization and austerity. Take Kansas, take the fact that 29 states still spend less in education than they did before the recession. So then you have a combination of they spend less than they did before the 2007, eight recession and they divert resources to privatization like charters and vouchers, which institutions are frankly not doing any better and sometimes worse than the schools that they have taken the resources from. And that's why you see, in some ways, this great frustration in many of these red states of teachers standing up. And I couldn't be more inspired by them, that they have been pushed to the wall and they're saying, enough. And we are standing up, not just for ourselves, but for our kids.
0: How do you capitalize on the momentum that seems to be taking place in in some of the most unlikely states right now?
1: So, you know, Marshall Gans has a really great analysis on all this, and I find myself going back. He's a great organizer. He's now at Harvard. I find myself going back to thinking about his teaching because you need both mobilization and organization. You know, how many times have we attempted to mobilize people around an issue and, you know, stir the consciousness of a nation. And how many times do you try to do that? And this may be the the silver lining of the Trump era. We are in a rallying mode. We have become a rallying nation. Something about his election and about the way in which he comports himself has stirred the consciousness of a lot of people who may have given up before or may have said, it's not my issue. And that mobilization is golden. It's amazing. It's inspiring. And so the, the key is, how do you help nurture it? Because people make a huge mistake thinking they can direct it. How do you nurture it? How do you support it? And how do you help channel it to enduring change? And that means both the demonstrations and voting. Voting in this instance, changing policy in this instance, and changing it in a way that people see is doable. That is the way, I think, to take this incredible moment and make it a movement for enduring change, meaning for essentially empowering people in a collective way to have a better life for themselves and their families. And that's what I think is our challenge right now, how to do that. And the November 2018 elections are a very important way to do that. Can you talk
0: about how you... Became came to be head of the AFT briefly, <laughs> and what the role is of the AFT in this moment politically.
1: Look, I was the president of the UFT, which is the biggest local union within the AFT. I was asked by the leadership to run for the AFT president several times. I declined several times. Frankly, I never wanted to be president of the UFT either. I wanted to be in the background. I never, I never wanted either of the jobs that I...
0: Better to be asked had. than to seek it. Sometimes, well, right? You know,
1: I just I didn't think first. I didn't think I was up to it, and I didn't think I was capable of it. I also, you know, didn't think when I was asked a couple of times in turn to run in terms of the AFT, I I had more work to do in New York, and I don't like leaving a job until I finish a job. So that's just how I feel. So, but I finally realized. I would say in 2007, that watching not only what was happening in New York in terms of the attack on teachers, the attack on our profession, this at that point, what was this group of people who never spent a minute in a classroom thinking that they could reduce children to test scores and teachers to algorithms, you know, and that technology would take over education, and they could monetize it and privatize it. And I saw, you know, the superintendent that I sparred with a lot, um, Joel Klein, the superintendent in Washington, D.C., Michelle Rhee, and Eli Broad. I saw it not only being Republicans who were doing this, conservative Republicans who wanted to save a buck, but also these elitist Democrats who were doing this. And I realized that if one was going to actually get involved in this, that the only way to actually try to win this fight was to also do it nationally. And that's why I decided to, to run at that point. And frankly, it was too late. It's taken us many, many years to fight back against the challenge, not only on investment, on combating privatization, on combating defunding, but the challenge against autonomy and professionalism. And so many teachers are not just stressed out, but are so completely demoralized because, you know, somebody from on high is trying to basically reduce anything they do into a test or an algorithm. I think that that more infuriates people for good reason than almost any of the other exploitation that they face on an everyday basis.
0: I'm sure that there are multiple trends in education, some good, some bad. What gives you optimism about the, if anything, about the changing state of education in
1: this country? Oh, you know, what gave me, what gives me optimism is that these fights really matter. Number one, we actually know what to do to help children learn and to help schools be environments where parents want to send their kids, educators want to work, and children thrive. We actually know what to do. And we have learned that over you know generations. And we need to have enough power in legislatures all across the country and champions in governors and in others to actually let us do our job and have the investments that we need. So that gives me optimism. And I did a speech around about this in January, 2017. If you actually focus on the well-being of children, engage them in powerful learning, build the capacity and the agency of your teaching force. So constantly building capacity and training, professional development, but also making sure that they have voice and the supplies, materials and the wages they need and then have cultures of collaboration, parents with educators, principals and educators, radiating out to the community. If you actually invest in those four things and manage those four things, every school that you see, that's a great school. They do those four strategies. So that gives me great optimism that we actually do know how to create excellence and equity. That's number one. Number two is that that these fights really matter. And I saw that in the fight to change No Child Left Behind and the fight against testing. And to watch someone like President Obama apologize for policies that created a fixation on testing and was willing to work with us to get rid of No Child Left Behind and to um, create ESSA, the new federal law, watching states like um, New York and Ohio, where legislators are now saying, okay, now that we have that new federal law that says that teacher evaluation does not have to be linked to test scores, that that was wrong, that that helped create too much testing. And you have both Republican and Democratic legislators, who are willing to change their state law now on this, watching West Virginia and Oklahoma and Arizona and Kentucky and Colorado, and there may be more places where people have not had strong labor laws being willing to take the risk to fight for themselves and their kids. These fights really matter on behalf of kids and, and their opportunity, and it's their teachers and their parents who are leading these fights. Those two things give me great optimism.
0: Part of this is necessarily a political fight. What is the AFT's role going up into the midterms, going up to the next,
1: so where are you is, on this? This is our number one priority right now, the 2018 elections. And there is a poster on my door when you walk into my office, Which I just read. Um, That I wrote in January talking about my feelings and my responsibility in it. And essentially, I think that this election is the most important in my lifetime. Not that what happened in the 60s were not important. They were very important. And not that there's issues that have happened over the course of our lifetimes that are not important. They're all very important. But the difference right now is that I think we are at a turning point, both in terms of our democracy and our economy. And in terms of the democracy, what we have seen is that the other side uses the fear of the other. Donald Trump uses the fear of the other. The right wing Republicans, Fox TV, They use the fear of the other in order to try and not meet the legitimate aspirations of Americans in an economic time of great inequality. You see that in Kansas. You see that with the tax bill. You see that on the issues of immigration. You see that on the issues of the fight against labor, of the fight against public education, of the fight- against voting rights. And our side has to be about inclusion and how a rising tide lifts all boats. But you have to create that rising tide, not in a moment, but in an enduring way. And so this election is about sanity. It's about fairness. It's about a check and balance in terms of the democracy as well as the issues that we as a labor movement would normally be championing, like economic dignity, living wages, secure retirement, voice at work, good public schools, affordable health care, affordable college. We have to be championing the fight against the wedge, the fight against fear, the fight against hatred and bigotry, the fight for a democracy where all people have voice. And we have to do both at the same time. And that's the urgency of this election. And what's interesting is that we do it not in a vacuum. We do it at the very moment. You think elections don't matter? You do it at the very moment that the Supreme Court any day pushed and prodded by the right wing who does not want regular folks to have power, they will take a bunch of power away from the public sector unions. Are you
0: talking about the Janus? I'm
1: talking about the Janus case. The Janus case is about, on the face of it, really, truly how states do their labor relations with their public employees. I mean, that's what the case is about. But the right wing has been able to position it as a First Amendment case as opposed to a Tenth Amendment case. And so the court is deciding right now as we speak that do the 23 states that have made a decision that the way in which they do labor relations with their public employees is simply if the public employees decide to have a union, that that union represents everybody And because that union represents everybody, even if you don't want to be a member of the union, which you have a right not to be, you have a right to do whatever you want, you have a right to say whatever you want, but for the representation, you pay a fair share. And the right wing challenged whether somebody has to pay a fair share for that representation.
0: And the consequences, if that case is lost, which it appears like it probably will be, are a lot of defunding of public right. sector unions. So
1: the, this case was actually decided about 50 years ago, a unanimous decision- The other way. In, a, in the other way, in a case called Abood versus the Detroit Board of Education. Once the court had one more time a fifth, what is viewed as a fifth conservative judge, the right wing brought the case three years ago In a Friedrichs decided 4-4 after Justice Scalia died, and now essentially the exact same case. And what we're assuming, because the Koch brothers and others have said that they're going to spend about $400 million to defund us, we're assuming that after the case is decided, there will be not a teacher-driven or public employee-driven move, but there will be a right-wing-inspired move to try to create opt-out campaigns throughout the country to try to defund labor unions.
0: It feels like the machinery of the right-wing is fairly intelligent, long-term thinking, well-funded, formidable, and working across multiple areas of policy and politics. Mm -hmm. How do you see the balance of power between the left and the right in this country? and And how do we strengthen our side?
1: Look, the right wing has money. You know, I hate even thinking about it in terms of right versus left, but the right wing has money and progressives have people. People have different views and you have to bring them together over values that have common cause. And, you know, That's democracy and that's a little messy sometimes. And on the right, what you see is a very disciplined sense that they want less government and they want less resources to people and they want to concentrate power for themselves. I mean, that's essentially what their principle that binds them is that they have the power right now and they wanna keep it. And they do not want others to have either power or knowledge. And that's why you see the Koch brothers and others, they've created things like the Heritage Institute, they've created the Federalist Society, and they have thought about how, over the course of time, to concentrate power both politically and economically. So it's not simply that they want fewer taxes, they actually do not want the government to competently help create a ladder of opportunity for others.
0: What do you think the characteristics are of a candidate for the Democrats that would be the best to offer up against Trump if he's still around in, well, in off, next time. Well, first off, I
1: think, I know there's 500 people thinking about running for office, running for president in terms of 2020.
0: Well, everyone thinks they could be better than the incumbent.
1: We'll see what the process produces. Trump is a response to what has happened here. And what I think the two things that the right wing have done that are tremendously unfortunate is the concentration of economic and political power that seems impermeable and using the fear of the other in order to accomplish that. And what a Democratic candidate has to do, I think, in my opinion, has to show and has to champion what he or she or they are going to do to help people, both to create a ladder of opportunity, not to be a handout, but to be a hand up, to make the argument that the work, like like unions try to do, that you can accomplish collectively what is impossible to accomplish alone, that this is the kind of fight between those who are born with silver spoons in their mouth and are able because of their money and because of their resources, they can do whatever they want versus everybody else in America. And a Democratic candidate has to be about everybody else in America. That's why schooling has become such a huge battlefield because schooling, public schooling used to be, it never was a Republican versus Democratic issue. But what has happened is that take Arizona. The Koch brothers basically control that state house, and they have created a billion and a half dollars less in school aid for the kids in Arizona over the course of the last few years. Why? Because they go into tax cuts, they go into privatization, they go into other things. What about the kids in Arizona? It's the same in terms of Oklahoma. There's been a huge shift in terms of tax receipts and taxes in these states for there being tax cuts for the rich and for oil companies and all of this at the expense of kids. And with an argument that says, this is really important for our economy. Well, it has feathered the nest of those who are already rich. It hasn't in those states actually help the economic prospects, same in terms of Kansas.
0: Do you think that the the fights that the teachers are making right now in those states and elsewhere, and that teachers in other states, what's well, not going on, are watching, are gonna have electoral consequences in so. 2018?
1: I mean, I hope so. For it to be enduring change, the demonstrations are absolutely imperative. But teachers right now, over and over again, they are walking out for their children, for their future, but they have to walk into the ballot box in November for it to be enduring change. And we see that take in New York. Christine Pellegrino, a school teacher, ran for state assembly on Long Island last year, 2017, in a district where Trump won the district decisively. She ran as a Democrat. She ran on schools and on health care on helping working people. She won decisively. There was a basically a 20-point switch, maybe even a 40-point switch, because he won. Trump won that district by 20 points. She won her assembly district by 20 points. She was one of the people who's on the bill, the New York State Assembly bill, to actually delink. Uh, student test scores from teacher evaluation and from student long term student records, and to allow districts to actually meet the needs of students rather than to fixate on test scores. That's how elections really matter. That's how you take the argument, which was a red heart argument in New York about the overemphasis on testing, and how do you change it? You have to change it by changing policy in a way that it meets the people's needs. And that's not gonna happen without people in government, elected officials who actually believe that and will fight shoulder to shoulder with you to accomplish that.
0: I'm curious about just briefly about your view of 2016 from the standpoint of how we fought that election. You know, I know that your union endorsed Hillary. I know that she faced an opponent who was willing to bring her husband's accusers to a debate, who was willing to give evil nicknames to his opponents, who doesn't seem to have much shame, and who's willing to lie left and right. Do you think that we know how to fight hard enough in these things? What was the lens with which you viewed 2016? And and what do we learn from that going forward?
1: Well, I think that there's a lot of, um, as you can imagine, I have a lot of thoughts about 2016, separate and apart from who the candidates are. There was a real question in 2016 as to whether or not the country was ready for a female president, since she was exceptionally well-qualified, and anyone who actually looked at what her record was would have seen that divorced from the caricature of her and one can see you know focus on things everybody everybody makes mistakes but the focus on emails as opposed to the constant revealing of confidential information basically to the russians that this current president does it shows that there was a whole bunch of hypocrisy in terms of the lens by which someone looked at at Hillary Clinton. Having said that, the reason that Donald Trump won in my judgment, and even though Hillary Clinton got three million more votes than he did, the reason Donald Trump won was because Trump was able to market himself as a populist who understood the frustration of Americans who didn't like what their lives were right now. Some of that is because the country is changing and we will soon be a country that is majority non-white. Some of that is because there was a whole issue about was the country ready for a female as opposed to a male president? And some of that is because of the the decreasing ability of people to actually live a middle-class life, both while they are working and when they retire. All of those issues of frustration, he was able to have enough people believe that he was their champion. That's why I think he won this. And that's why I think that the issues of fact, character, you know, things that in our country normally matter more were subsumed by his base's trust in him. And that is the lesson I get from 2016. And so I think that we need to not just resist his arbitrariness, his capriciousness, his tendency to be authoritarian, oligarchical, cronyistic, and cruel. We need to resist all of that, we need to call all of that out, we need to resist all of that, but we also need to be champions of working people. And you can be a champion in a righteous way, as opposed to through the politics of fear and bigotry and hate. And that is, I think, what we need to do as a labor movement, And any person who's running for elected office, I would give them the same advice. I'm pretty, you know, no one would suggest that I don't fight fiercely, but there's a fight to create opportunity and there's a fight that pushes other people down. Our job is to create opportunity, not to get into the gutter with him and compete and try to match his cruelty or his lying or his authoritarianism. I know Michelle Obama said, when they go low, we go high. But going high means you create power of the people to actually secure what the people need in a way that everyone has a voice everyone's rights are respected. And I think that that is our responsibility now. It is baked into the values of economic and educational opportunity um, and the fight against bigotry and hate.
0: What you said about needing to be champions of working people resonated with me. How do you think the Democratic Party is doing right now in terms of positioning itself in that way? And communicating that way. Look, and,
1: I, I mean, I th- some people are doing it well, and some people are, you know, need to do more. We live in a capitalist democracy. That's the way in which the country was envisioned over 200 years ago. We need to make sure that we have social safety nets like Medicare, and I believe healthcare for all and that Medicare should be extended to be healthcare for all. I believe we need to have public education that is affordable and that is available and adequate for all, regardless of zip code. I believe that there's a real role for government to fix our bridges and fix our infrastructure, which will create more jobs. And there are ways that government can create opportunity to lift wages. And I think we should be pursuing that. There are ways that government can ensure that people have a secure retirement. And so there are things, there are levers in the economy that Democrats can be championing so that people see that Democrats are fighting for living wages for people, for working folks, and for the opportunity that people need, not just training opportunity, but other education and other economic opportunities. And so I think we should be doing more of that. Also, Democrats, since the uh, 1950s, the Democratic Party has been very much focused on broadening you know, civil rights for all. And I think that's really important as well, broadening a sense of inclusiveness and tolerance. And that's very, very, very important. King, in some ways, said it best in 1963 in the march, when he talked about the dream of jobs and justice. And frankly, that's where I think the Democratic Party should be. It's very important that we focus on minimum wage, but most people need a living wage, an adequate wage, not just a minimum wage. So the party has a way to go in terms of people seeing it as the champion of working people, but when you compare where the Democratic Party is, the platform from 2016 versus the Republican Party, there's not a question. One party is a champion of working folks, and the other party believes in winners and losers. And um, I think the Democratic Party is the place that's a champion of working folks.
0: You're the sort of person I would love to talk to for many hours, but probably should be respectful of your time. Uh, is there anything else you wanna say?
1: I would say there's one more thing I want to say, which is this is a country that has great potential and great promise, but we have tremendous headwinds right now, and we need to be awoke about this. Democracies die, not because of coup d'etats anymore. Democracies die because of whittling of rights, because of changes in the norms. That's what we've seen. Hungary, that's what we've seen in Poland, that's what we've seen, frankly, in what's going on in Russia. And we're in a race between whether we actually have a democracy where people have a voice and where people can champion their needs versus a place that is polarized by the fear of the other. And this is a moment Um, The next few months leading to the November elections, where people can actually vote for fairness, for sanity, for checks and balances, and for a democracy that is about pluralism and about inclusiveness and tolerance. There are very few times in America that we are actually living in and can actually vote for what the direction of our country will be for decades. And so this is a pretty important moment.
0: It is really high stakes. Thank you for talking to me. So that was Randy Weingarten. She's at AFT.org. I'm grateful to Randy and the AFT for their fight to champion teachers and other working people. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman of The Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at resistancedashboard.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.